Hey, it's Jameson Fink here with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Thanks for tuning in. And I have a question for you. How do you buy your wine? Do you go to the grocery store and while you're getting your, your dogs and your pizza and your beer, like my shopping list, do you also pick up some wine? Do you go to an independent wine shop? Do you go to a big box store? Do you make your own wine so you don't even need to worry about that? Or do you buy it online? Uh, more and more people seem to be buying wine via the internet and, and via email, which is the reason why I wanted to talk with Paul Zitarelli, who's the owner of Full Pole Wines. It's a all uh, mailing list. Uh, you buy wine by getting on a mailing list. Paul sends you an offer, you read it, and you buy. Uh, it seems like a pretty simple model, but like most simple things, there's a lot of uh, incredible work going on behind it. So I wanted to kind of get inside of, of Paul's mind and ask him uh, how he approaches this kind of uh, business and uh, what drives him and, and what he's looking forward to doing in the future. But my first question for you, Paul, is what was the first wine you offered? Oh, great question. Uh, the first wine I offered through Full Pull was uh, 2004 uh, Mountain Dome Brut, a, uh, a sparkling wine uh, not just made in Washington, but made in Spokane, uh, Washington. With the uh, with the little uh, the gnomes on the label. It is the one with the gnomes on the label. Although the, the gnomes are not with us anymore, I understand. No, no, and that is that is very sad. Yeah, yeah that was uh, that was a terrific little gem of a winery. It, it did. And when was that? How long ago was that? Your first offer was that was October fifth, uh, two thousand nine. So just past the the four year mark. And what? Um, what was it about that wine that made, and congratulations, by the way. Thank you. What was it about that wine that made you offer it over uh, all of the, you know, panoply of Washington wines you could pick? Yeah. Um, well, to start out with, uh, it was sparkling. Uh-huh. And uh, sparkling wine definitely um, has kind of a special place in my house. Um, my wife and I uh, kind of went into this idea of full pull together. Uh, she doesn't. Uh, have day-to-day involvement with the business but she agreed to kind of keep a keep a day job and uh, 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 with good health insurance for at least a couple years while it gave us a chance to get off the ground that's a savvy move yeah and all she asked in return was uh, to have a a case of sparkling wine on hand at all times in the house that's not a bad deal that's a pretty good deal it's pretty reasonable for both of you I think yeah I think so so it kind of in my mind it always had to be uh it always had to be sparkling. I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, christen christen this uh, that ship the right way. So, uh, and that really narrowed it down considerably. Uh, back in 2009, there were very very few producers making sparkling wine in Washington, and for me at, at the time, Mountain Dome was the best. Yeah, and um, that's that's great. I mean, I'm a huge sparkling wine fan, so that warms my heart to hear you, hear you start out like that. But you did start in Mountain Dome. Uh, Washington sparkling wine, and you started out just offering uh, Washington wines. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, at the time, I felt like um, you know we were living in this this wine region that had um, you know I was going to say potential, but I think at that point the potential had, had been realized to a large degree. But it was this nice little self-contained world where within Washington, um, you know, a lot of people really got Washington wine, understood it, loved it. But I thought there was a lot of room to uh, to send the message a little further afield and to write about some of these wines and uh, and to try to do it uh, for for folks who were living outside the confines of Washington who just weren't getting access to any of 
all the boutique wines that they were getting made here? Yeah, I mean, when I, uh, you know, Paul, when I travel the country, uh, not to sound too insufferable, but I don't see, um, you don't see, you know, I don't know why, I guess because living in Washington, living in Seattle for the past seven or eight years, um, I just kind of expect like, oh, I'll see, I mean, you're not expecting to, you know, to go to New York and see like a Washington wine like dominating the list, but sure. um, really the offerings are a lot of the, the usual suspects and there's still a lot of work to be done, the kind of work that you're doing to promote Washington wines. Um, do you find that it takes uh, a lot of educating about Washington when you're trying to trying to you know convince someone to purchase a Washington wine who lives in I don't know, Florida or uh, Virginia or Chicago? Yeah, you know, I I've certainly heard that message from um, from the winemakers that we work with and from the commission from the Washington Wine Commission, um, and those are the guys I think who are really on the forefront of of the nitty gritty education. I think by the time our lists, our out-of-state list members find full poll and sign up for that list, they're they're already converts to some degree. They're already interested enough in Washington wine that they've gone and signed up for this list. So we tend to get a, a little bit of a geekier subset, and I say that in the most affectionate way. Right. But, well, you're talking to a geek, so you know, <laughs> you're, you're playing me like a fiddle right now. <laughs> um, that's a so you start with Washington. And um, and then also you branched out in a couple of directions, but was Oregon your first outside of Washington foray? It was. Uh, like uh, like many Washington winemakers, I heard the siren call of, of Pinot Noir, uh, and just in the same way that you'll see a lot of uh, Washington winemakers sneaking off a barrel or two of Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, I, uh, I couldn't resist it. So I uh, thought it was kind of perfectly complementary to what to what we do in Washington, you know, uh, where in general, outside of cold vintages like 10 and 11, you know, we're generally making bigger, more muscular styles, uh, uh, speaking more to reds. And then uh, you have these beautiful, light, ethereal Pinot Noirs coming out of, out of Oregon, um, and it just seemed like the perfect place to go next. Yeah, you know, I, I just talked to uh, Ross Mickle of uh, Ross Andrew Mickle of Ross Andrew Winery, and he talked about that sort of siren song of making some Pinot as a Washington winemaker. Although he sort of has a multi-state Washington blend called Meadow, which is really good, but. Um, but he, the way he put it was he just wanted to make his life more difficult by, <laughs> by making Pinot Noir. But um, how do you, uh, you know, we're, we're in the Pacific Northwest, we're talking about Washington and Oregon wine. How do you, as, uh, you know, I'm, you go to fullpolewines.com to, yep. to sign up. Uh, I get an email at four or five times a week. That's about right. And um, how do you approach... Uh, introducing people to a wine is it you know I mean I, I know the answer to this question because I'm an avid reader but you um, is it like this wine is 50% Merlot 50% Cabernet it you know it comes from this area um, what I like is that you a lot of times you weave in um, uh, you know like what I like to do you weave in a story that uh, is, is tangential but yet critical to the wine it's not just like here is the information about the wine the nuts and bolts you know now buy it there's more like stories about you or your life or meeting a winemaker or eating something somewhere is that um, is that just who you are as far as uh, you know your writing style what you want to convey I think it's partly that um, it's partly me writing about the things that interest me but I think it's also um identifying um, something out there that grabs people about wine where um, you know it really is kind of one of the last cottage industries and there is such this, this great diversity uh, you know you were talking in the intro about somebody who 
who buys wine walking into a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you walk into that store and there are uh, hundreds or maybe even a thousand SKUs on the shelf. Uh, and the fascinating thing is each, you know, each one of those bottles really does have a story. It's an agricultural product that somebody made and someone farmed and grew those grapes and someone turned those grapes into wines. And a lot of the stories are really good stories. Yeah, and absolutely. You know, they're mom and pop shops and, um, and I think there's an appetite, uh, you know, it, so many of the products that we buy really are commodities. And I think there's an appetite with wine uh, because it's so not a commodity. People want to know a little more behind what they're, uh, mm-hmm. what they're drinking. Well, I think, you know, when I think about talking with people about wine and, and helping them purchase wine that, you know, people like, what, what's it, what's in it? Well, it's, there's Cabernet and Merlot and, you know, that kind of thing. But I like to give them a little piece of that story. Cause I think when you bring a, a bottle of wine home and you share it with like your friends or family, if you can say like, you know, the winemaker uh, decided to make wine after, you know, fly fishing with Brian Canlis on some uh, river in Montana or something like that. I think people are like, oh, that's a cool little like nugget. I think people want to know what makes this. Like it's more than just the sum of its parts, you know, grape wise and, and what's in the bottle that that's part of the the romance and passion of wine. I think, well, I mean, as you know, as somebody's trying to sell wine and uh, that that's uh, you want to take advantage of those stories that are out there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. I, I sort of see the writing I do as needing to cover three main things. It should if it's a, you know, for me, a good full pull offer is going to educate. It's going to entertain um, and it's going to sell. And I mean that's probably where I separate from uh, from pure wine blogging, which is what I did before uh, I launched Full Pull. Uh, you know, the nice part about blogging was you didn't have to worry about uh, the sales side, and there was right. there was a purity to that that I that I do miss sometimes. But uh, but I've been willing to trade that, I guess, for the for the ability to do it for a living. But as a blogger, I would say there's a real purity to uh, making money from about <laughs> wine. <laughs> that's my that's my that's my 2013 purity. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we've uh, we've gone from the beginning uh, talking about sparkling wine in Washington. You branched out to uh, offering Oregon wines, and um, and then you've made you've made the leap into. Uh, the rest of the world, or I guess, especially—is it just Europe that you've done, or have you dabbled in um, other continents as well? Yeah, most mostly Europe, but I've uh, I've dabbled in some new yeah. wine stuff too. And I should mention right now that we're taping this at Bottle House. It's the wine bar I work at in Seattle. It's in this. Uh, it's in a. It's literally in a house. It's a really charming spot, and we're both uh, drinking European wines. Um, I have a. Uh, this is my segue into the European wine part of Full Pull. Um, I have this uh, Gromon Sang is the grape. It's made by Domaine de Cassignols. Um When this show comes out, I'll have a write-up, a little little preview about it, and I'll at jamesonfink.com, and I'll give you all the information about this wine. But it's one of my all-time favorite uh, under $15 white wines. Uh, it's not the easiest name to say, and Gromon Sang probably isn't the sexiest sounding grape. It sounds sexy to me, but my, my definition of wine sexiness is a little, I guess, more uh, geeky. And um, you've got a cava from sparkling wine from Spain, which I think it's a vintage dated cava. And there's a, it's a, is it a zero dosage? I think it it's is. It's fruit and tour, so I so assume. There's yeah. no, there's no. It's like the driest of the dry. It's bone dry. Uh, it's like a uh, searing oyster type uh, bracing um, uh, sparkling wine. But um, what I guess you know what led you to say like I'm going to throw my hat into the world of offering European wines for sale in full pole. Yeah, 
Uh, two main things. Um, one was that uh, our list members were asking for it. Uh, uh, that's good to listen to them. Yeah. That's savvy. Uh, and the other was that um, was that I drink wines from all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, not, not just from the Northwest. Um, and, you know, I think it's been important for my own uh, education to, you know, if you're going to focus mostly on Northwest wines, I think it's important to be able to put those into some kind of world context. Right. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's part of why I drink broadly, but I also drink broadly just because I think there's a lot of joy in the diversity of, uh, of wine and not, uh, not every wine made around the world can be perfectly replicated in the Pacific Northwest. True. There are some things that are really particular to a place that they're growing. And so I, uh, was dying for a chance to write about some of those spots and, and some of those wines. And um, so some of it was just selfishness, just, right. um, you know, wanting to really have a broader uh, uh, broader set of topics to write about. So, um, you know, uh, so Mountain Dome was the first wine, the first offer. What was the first Oregon wine? First Oregon wine was, uh, was Irie uh, Pinot Noir. And Irie uh, is uh, you're talking about um, founded by David Lett in the early '70s. I mean, it's 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 probably I don't know the most iconic historic one of them in Oregon. It's a, a pioneer of Pinot Noir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, they um, uh, definitely the most historically significant uh, winery in Oregon that, that's still going today, um, and. Uh, for me, there was I, I knew that one from very early on. I, I knew that the first uh, Oregon wine that we would do would, would need to be Irie. They've just been uh, special wines for me personally and my own uh, developing love of, of Oregon wines. And uh, and I think they have a great story. Uh, second generation winemaker now. Uh, one of those rare cases where they've successfully passed the baton from one generation to the next. Yeah, definitely. And then... Um... Now, uh, was your first European offering a sparkling wine? That would be my guess. Uh, it it was. Yes, uh, it was not. This uh, is not rehearsed too. I did not. Know. Uh, yeah, I might have. You know, I'm on your list. I might have seen it, but I, I didn't. I swear I didn't go back to the archives. Yeah, I wanted to plant a flag with the first European offer, and uh, it's kind of a big decision for you. I mean, yeah, it's sort of emblematic of how do I differentiate myself from other things that are out there, like. Straight, true to my full pole roots type of thing. Yeah, um, it's not a. I'm sure it's not a decision you took lightly. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was. Uh, so the first wine was uh, was uh, Amistoy Chocolina, um, oh. and it was a rosé Chocolina. Okay. So I wanted to sort of plant this flag that said. Uh, this is this is not going to be terribly mainstream. We're going to no. Do I can't even spell it. So this is a wine from the Basque country of Spain. Uh, the grapes are uh, like Hanadura Zarabi, and um, I'm I'm opening myself up to ridicule from many people. But uh, the grapes are really hard to pronounce. The label is really hard to read. Um, but it's like a uh, slightly fizzy, spritzy, really bracing, really dry. Um, uh, white wine and the rosé is along those those lines as well. So yeah, yeah, you definitely planted your, your flag in in, um, in wine freak. It was a freak flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, and you flew it high. <laughs> I, you stood next to it. I did. Um, and how did that? I mean, how does that go over with your customers? Like, do you, do you get a lot of feedback? Like, I don't know what that is, or uh, can you tell me more about that? Or um, how about can I just get more Washington uh, cap or something? Yeah, a little bit, uh, a little bit of that. We, um, 
we, at the time that we branched into imports, uh, we offered our list members the chance to kind of be grandfathered into continuing to only receive the Northwest stuff. Oh, okay. um, we didn't offer that, that option for, for new members. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as it turned out, we only had two, two of our list members took us up on that. Wow. Um, and so I kind of let them go for a year, and then I, I told them that we needed to fold them back into the import side since uh, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to keep separate lists for two people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. No, I was thrilled. I uh, honestly, I expected, I expected we would get thirty or forty percent of our list that would, that would uh, mm-hmm. push to, you know, because we had built the early brand really on Northwest Wine, right. and yeah, this was absolutely. a big step out. Uh, and so I, I mean, for me, I was really touched. I saw it as uh, our list members kind of having confidence that, you know, I wouldn't lead them too far astray, and that yeah. you know we'd continue to offer compelling wines even right. if it was from this big wide world, right? And you're listening to Wine Without Worry with Jameson Fink. My guest is Paul Zitarelli. He's the owner of Full Pole Wines. You can find out more about Full Pole or sign up at fullpolewines.com. And you can read more about Washington wine, Oregon wine, chocolate, uh, Gromon Sang, and some grapes you may have heard of at jamesonfink.com. And coming up, I'm going to ask Paul about uh, the name Full Pole. How did that come about? And we're going to talk about the... Uh, the Maritime Alps uh, as well. So, Paul, I uh, was doing some background reading on the business, and I love the story about how uh, Full Pole got its name. I had assumed it was something like a sort of a a very uh, vivacious, like, pulling of the cork. Like, you take the whole cork out in one pull, like, and it makes that big pop, and, you know, it's like a joyous, like, bacchanalia celebration but it's uh it's well it's that's not what happened so tell me it's a great story about how you got the name yeah sure um so my first job of college was uh this great little small company um outside of boston and we uh we got to do uh we did a company retreat once each year in the fall and it was out in the adirondacks um and during that retreat, we got one day uh, where we could kind of have the day to ourselves and go do whatever we wanted. So at the end of one of those days, um, the, the CEO of the company, who was kind of this classic Boston patrician, uh, came up to me and he said, Oh, Zitarelli, what did you do with your day? I said, Oh, Jim, it was a great day. You know, went on a hike, uh, went swimming in a lake, ate all this great food, drank all this great wine. He said, Well, here in the Adirondacks, we call that the full pole. Uh, and I mean, for years afterwards, I tried to figure out whether that was, uh, true. And I, you know, Googled Adirondacks full pull a hundred times and never found anything. So I don't know if anyone other than, uh, than my CEO back then actually used that term, but it always stuck with me as a way to describe, uh, those really glorious, you know, food and wine and friend filled days that, uh, and that's kind of the mission of a full pole is to try to facilitate those kind of days. So you kind of uh, squirreled that uh, phrase away and knowing one day you might deploy it in some, uh, in some, I don't know, some guys, personal and or professional. You got it. Yeah. Um, well, this is where it's, it's the end of October. This show is going to air like the, in the waning days of October, then right around the corner, November, Thanksgiving, uh, holidays, Christmas, etc. Um, do you? Uh, is this something where you focus in November and December? Do you start thinking like, all right, I'm, like it's time for like holiday wines, Thanksgiving wines, sparkling wines, maybe even sweet wines, dessert wines? Do you do you have sort of a seasonal uh, bent when it comes to November and December? Yeah, um, I mean we're on a little bit. Um 
uh, we're on a little bit of a weird schedule because there's always that built-in delay between us uh, offering a wine and then having the wine come in and having our list members pick up. So right. we tend to, you know, I'm starting to think about uh, getting, you know, Thanksgiving-themed wines out by, uh, you know, within the next week or two. Right. Um, and holiday wines in late November. But uh, for sure, this is the time of year when I think about all that stuff. Uh, you know, Cru Beaujolais for Thanksgiving uh-huh. and sparkling and sweet wines for yeah. uh, for Christmas time and New Year's. Absolutely. Yeah, I almost drank, uh, I almost ordered here at Bottle House. Uh, we've got this uh, uh, Pierre Charmette. Uh, yeah, this uh, Cuvée Traditionnel. And it's just a, it's a Beaujolais. Uh, it's really light, really fresh, really easy drinking. It's a really pretty wine. And, uh, Cru Beaujolais are are the top sites of Beaujolais. So they actually don't, they say like, they'll say like a Morgone on them or uh, the name of the crew. But those wines are killer and they're not expensive. They're like 20 to 25-ish bucks. There are a couple that, you know, pushed on a little bit like 40. But yeah. but I think for me, I love those wines because people who like, uh, Pinot Noir is too expensive. And yeah, sure, Burgundy is really expensive or there's a lot of expensive Oregon. Uh, but, you know, and Cru Beaujolais isn't... Uh, Pinot Noir, it's Gamay, but I think people who like those kind of elegant uh, wines that have good, you know, structure to them, uh, I, I would just say, you know what, um, take your take your Burgundy money and spend it on Cru Beaujolais. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, I was at a tasting a couple of weeks ago where uh, an importer was pouring Sharub, uh, which is another uh, one of the crews of, of Beaujolais, and, and I said to the guy, why why is it so rare to see? Um, to see any Sharub show up in Seattle at all. And he said, well, Paul, it's because the fucking French keep it all for themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I think that's true to some degree. A lot of the, uh, a lot of those styles of wine actually uh, never, never make it out of the motherland, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know, that's another good thing to think about talking about Beaujolais is that in a few weeks, it'll be Beaujolais Nouveau time. And that's, you know, always a fun evening. And, um, I, my, my thing is it's sort of and, and what Beaujolais Nouveau had done for the profile I mean it put the region on uh, literally on, on, on the map for people like they people know what Beaujolais is unfortunately they associate Beaujolais Nouveau with all of Beaujolais and you know like, like what I like to be in Lyon is someone uh, you know like cracks open a, a barrel of uh, you know Beaujolais Nouveau and I'm, I'm there in the middle of some you know great plaza and I'm just drinking it out of a tumbler with like you know surrounded by beautiful French people or eating you know charcuterie and cheese yeah that's great but I think something that is a little lost in translation over here but it's, it's a fun event but I would say like Drink your Beaujolais Nouveau on the, was it the third Thursday of the month? Yeah. Third Thursday of the month. Do that. Drink it. Drink it with pleasure. And then don't forget about Beaujolais the rest of the year. Agreed. Would be, would be my thoughts. Um, another thing I alluded to uh, earlier is sweet wines. And um, it seems like people I, people are really enthusiastic wine drinkers. Like drink wine almost every day. When they go out to eat, they drink wine. But they never, ever, ever drink uh sweet wines, whether it's port or um, Madeira or, or Sauternes or any or any late harvest wine. Um, what's your feeling on dessert wines and how are they, uh, how, do you, how do you approach telling your uh, full pool customers about it who maybe just buy white and red wine yeah. or, or just red wine? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, sticky wines, sweet wines uh, from all over the place. I have a scary number of them in my own personal collection. Uh, and I mean, I think the, the biggest thing that I try to convey when I'm writing about them is that for 
almost all of them, I think it's a mistake when people, uh, and you know, they get called dessert wines a lot, and so people tend to pair them with other really sweet uh-huh. um, desserts, which even as someone who uh, likes the occasional, you know, over-the-top food pairing, yeah, like super sweet wine and super sweet dessert is kind yeah. of gross. Yeah. Um, so for me, I try to uh, push the envelope a little bit of what an appropriate pairing with that is, which is either, you know, don't pair it with anything yeah. and just enjoy it on its own yeah. or pair it with something really salty, savory, like a good sharp cheese or like a good liver pate and, you know, have it be as an appetizer maybe instead of dessert. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there are other ways to enjoy those wines, and they're amazing wines. Yeah, I, I just wrote something, my first thing for Serious Seats, about how Halloween candy and dessert wine. And last night, and I haven't seen an amount of Halloween candy in my life. By the way, if anyone wants any Halloween candy, um, this show will air in time for you to come over and just take it from me. I'm, uh, I'm really uh, suffering. But um, uh, so I, uh, last night I had, uh, I had some Madeira and a Three Musketeers, a little uh, Fun size bar, which was actually very good, but I love Madeira is my jam when it comes to sweet wines. Um, I just love Madeira. Madeira is made on this island off the coast of Africa, and it's like a totally cool story about how it's made. Um, for a sweet wine, it's got a lot of acidity, and I think it would be really good, like you said, with like just have like a little glass with some Marcona almonds or something like that, just the same thing along the lines with port or. Um, have it with really strong cheese, like that sort of, it's just like people like, you know, like a sweet salty combo. And I think that saltiness kind of, you know, uh, cuts through the sweetness and then, and vice versa, the, uh, the sweetness kind of, uh, you know, relieves you. It's a nice, sweet, salty, it's like a chocolate covered pretzel. I mean, that's yeah. a good thing. That's a good salt sugar marriage. So that's what I like about you know that dessert wines you want to maybe contrast rather than have like the flowerous chocolate cake with like port and you're just like oh my god i'm just in sugar overload yeah that's a little that can be a little much and i remember I, you know another another thing is uh i think that's one category of wines i mean i you know most of the wine that we sell we sell by uh writing about it and trying to convey what the bottle is going to be like i found that with with sweeter wines, um, getting uh, giving people a chance to taste it is an important thing. Yeah. And I, I remember one of my uh, uh, one of my instructors, one of my wine classes, who was a South African guy, said, oh, "Americans, they talk dry, but they drink sweet." And uh-huh. he was convinced that we were all raised on Coca-Cola palates. And if you got you know if you got sweet wines in front of people, they would always end up buying them. So uh-huh. I think there's some truth in that. Well, let's uh, let's talk about um, another part of your your background and starting full pole. I guess you had kind of an aha moment that I want you to talk about. Um, I was reading um, this really this really lyrical profile that some blog wrote about you, where you're uh, you got a thing of oysters. What was that blog called? Half. Oh, uh, oh my god. I'll put it on. I'll put it on jamesonfink.com. It, it's actually I, I'm I'm being a little glib, but it's actually it's a very nice and very thoughtful profile. But um, they talk about the, the it's hog salt. Hog salt is the name of the I said half, but the hell do I know? But uh, they talk talk of Sylvan glades, which is uh, <laughs> but, um, but Sylvan glades. I just I want that to be I don't know like my my band name or something or. Um, uh, a product of some kind, like in the Peterman catalog, mm. Sylvan Glades and Jay Peterman. Jay Peterman definitely has Sylvan Glades. But um, you were in the Maritime Alps with your wife when you kind of had this aha moment of starting full pole. So take me back to the Maritime Alps. Oh, certainly. Take me to the Sylvan Glades. Yeah. So we were in uh, a very small town called Saint Etienne de Tine that had. Uh, really only one legitimate restaurant and we were there for three nights so it's the only time in my life that I've gone out to the same restaurant three nights in a row um, 
But we were also using that trip to, uh, for me to make a decision um, about whether to start this business or not. I had uh, done an internship at Amazon between mm -hmm. my first and second years of business school and had an offer from Amazon and was weighing that in one hand and um, and and this business plan to start full pull in the other. Um, and so my wife and I were taking a lot of time in that little town to talk things over and try to make a decision. At a, and at a certain point, you know, we realized that while we're doing this, we're, uh, we're sitting in a room uh, or we're out on hikes and everywhere we go, we're drinking all this beautiful wine and we're eating all this great food. And it was sort of an aha moment. Like how, you know, how can we not try this? How can we not go for this? You know, and I, I had this really strong feeling that Amazon was not going to go out of business in the next five years. True, so true. You are, you are a great product. Uh, you can prognosticate yes, very well. I'm trying I'm to say prognosticate. I've had a half glass of wine. I can't say <laughs> prognosticate anymore. My crystal ball was very, yeah. was yeah, very clear. Yeah, your crystal ball <laughs> strong. You are strong with the force. Uh, but I, I felt like if, uh, on, the, on the flip side of that, if I didn't, Give full pull a try at that point um, that there'd be a good chance I'd never go back. So that's true. Amazon uh, is still here and is full pull. Yeah, two good so things. So all worked out okay. So where I mean, where are the Maritime Alps? And I thought like, well, Alps are mountains and Maritime. I think of ocean. So um, yeah, is that am, am I totally wrong there? Where are the Maritime? Alps? Yeah, the Maritime Alps are the part of the Alps that run uh, right down towards the towards the Mediterranean. Uh, so they kind of they. Uh, they flush out uh, in in the town of Nice. Uh, oh. So, what kind of wines were you drinking there? We were drinking, uh, you know, actually, what we were drinking was a lot of rosé that we had picked up in uh, Tavel the week oh, okay. before. Uh -huh. So we had gone uh, so Tavel, uh, French appellation that focuses uh, completely on rosé. Rosé, yeah. Uh, so heaven, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we knew we weren't going to be able to take that much home with us. So we really kind of loaded down the car and decided we were going to drink as much of that as we could um, while we were in this tiny mountain hamlet. So mostly rosé. Yeah, well, um, that I you're preaching to the choir there, rosé. I would say Tavel, and then there's like, I was just in Trento in Italy um, with this sparkling wine proof, and, and Trento is just all sparkling wine. They, there's nothing else there. Um, so I, I would say if I could like sort of spend time going back and forth between rosé and Tavel and sparkling wine in Trento, those would be my, that would be, my, I would wear a path. Happy would, life. Maybe like a pilgrimage type of, <laughs> uh, well-worn. Well, Paul, uh, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, it's great to, uh, know someone personally and professionally who's, uh, has an idea, uh, that maybe started way back in the Appalachian mountains, uh, about having a full pole and has come full circle. Uh, I know there's so much competition out there as far as where you can buy your wine that it's, uh, sometimes it sounds a little crazy. Oh, I'm getting an email and I'm going to buy wine from based on this email and I'm just looking at text and reading it, but I, I built this relationship. So, um, you know, I mean, hey, I, I buy wine from a, a, a variety of sources, but I think what you're doing um, really brings the passion and the spirit of wine in each uh, offering you send. And I think they're good reading. Um, you know, like I learn things from reading your offers. Or I learn things about you, and I think that's what people really appreciate is that it's a, uh, you know, it's about the wine, but it's also about you and um, and culture and passion and all the things that make wine fascinating and also fun too. There's also uh, there's no lack of fun in there. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show and be sure and uh you can keep up with full pull at fullpullwines.com and keep up with me at jamesonfink.com and thanks again paul thank you jameson it's been great